thank you, Lord, that we know that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you can't deny yourself. And so, Lord, as we've named people and situations and thought of people and situations that are hard, that are rough, that are terrible, and that are painful, we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all of that, we know that you are doing what needs to be done and your sovereign plan is being worked out, that you're comforting people, that you're healing people, that you're strengthening people. And some people, we thank you, Lord, that when the time comes, we're absent from the body, but we're present with the Lord. So it's a win-win situation. And forgive us when we get down in the mouth, when we think it's all about us. Forgive us when we see nothing but hopelessness in the future. And we pray, Father, that we as your children, that we would remain faithful regardless of how we feel, regardless of what circumstances are. And we would always rely upon your faithfulness as well. Thank you for loving us so very much. And we pray all of this knowing that you are working in ways that we sang about that we can't see. Ways that we haven't even thought to pray about. Ways that have not even entered our mind. You are always working. Thank you, Lord, for that. And so this we pray to your glory and honor, lifting up your people, whatever their needs may be, unto you. And we do this to a faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we got the microphone switch. That's why it took so long to... Uh, get back going here so hopefully things will work out better and uh, we are looking in the fifth chapter of John praise God we made it finally to the fifth chapter and uh, we have a story here but the story is not quite what most people think it is going to be most people think this is a story about how to get healed this is a story about if you want to be healed, you can be healed. Well, while that did happen in there, I think you'll see when we get to the end of all of this, this is not really the point of the story. We've titled it, The Battle is On. Because Jesus Christ came, and he came to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says. And he also, uh, is in doing that, is coming to be our Redeemer our Savior, our Lord, our Master, the one that can make us right before God and acceptable in God's presence. Well, there's a lot of hostility to the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't just stay and be a carpenter, a village carpenter in Nazareth and just say, well, whatever will be, will be. He is going out and he is actively teaching and preaching and healing and doing things that are actually stirring up trouble. And you'll see that even in this situation. This is an important story because this is where the battle starts between Jesus and the religious leaders that is going to culminate in his betrayal and in his arrest and in his uh, very crucifixion. And we'll see that this is all by the hand of of a sovereign God. So John chapter 5 verse 1. And here's our story. After this there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again. And now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. A pool which is called in Hebrew. Or maybe Aramaic. Uh, Beth Bethesda. And um, it says that uh, having five porches or porticos big columns surrounding them and covered patio type things and in these lay a great multitude 
of sick people. And that word sick there is the same word that we saw last week when the uh, 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 royal official's son was sick. It's the same one here. It describes weakness and severe sickness. Sick people here, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, we get a little explanation as to what they thought. This is not something that is taught in the Scripture. This is something that is described by the Scripture of the superstition these people believed. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And uh, those verses, that verse right there, verse 4, is not found in the oldest manuscripts. And uh, so if you have a newer translation, you did not have that particular verse. They're not denying any doctrines. They're just saying this was not in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. And verse 5, we pick back up. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years, long time to suffer. In fact, a lot of people in those days didn't even live 38 years, and he lived longer than that, suffering from this paralysis, this weakness. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, same word about when he knew the woman at the well, he knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, that's a little bit of an understatement. Of course he did. That's why he's there. That's why he is hoping to uh, be made well at this pool. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Referencing what we saw in verse 4. But while I am coming... Another steps down before me. And there's a little bit of me that goes, well, duh, you're paralyzed. How did he get there in the first place? And how does he expect to get to the water in this condition? This is an impossible condition for this poor guy. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's an impossible command, folks. A paralyzed guy just can't do that. This is either extremely cruel or it's a miracle. Well, of course, it's a miracle, as you know. And it says in verse 9, And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. Now, this is extremely important to this text. And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews, meaning the leadership there in Jerusalem said to him who was cured, and notice they're not in awe of the cure. They're not in awe of the miracle. They got one thing on their mind. Here it is, quote, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed, unquote. What kind of cruel, heartless people are these? What in the world makes them say that instead of saying, What happened? Praise God. All they can think about is you're carrying your bed. This guy couldn't even walk a few moments ago. And now he's carrying his bed and that's got them all ripped out of their frame. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 16 and notice this. For this reason, the Jews 
persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They could not see past what they thought should and should not be done on the Sabbath to see the Lord of the Sabbath, to see the God of the Sabbath, to see the miracle worker of the Sabbath. All of that is irrelevant. They put it aside because it's not exactly what they think. It kind of reminds me of people today that look around and they see all of the world and all of creation and all of the universe and yet they deny the God who made the universe. All they can do is get hung up on the fact that there can't possibly be a God. This all has to be by random chance. People believe what they want to believe, what they think, what they see, and what they focus on. And if you look, the heavens declare the glory of God, but not for a lot of people. And in this case, the glory of God is on Full display where this man who has been sick for not just a week where they could say, oh, it was temporary paralysis, 38 years. This is a man who hung all of his hopes on being able to get into a pool of water whenever the water was troubled in hopes that he might be the first one in and healed. And yet he has no ability to do that, to do any of that. And here he is walking, carrying his bed. And all these people can do is say, you're carrying that on the Sabbath? Don't you know that that is unlawful? And we'll talk about that in uh, just a a little bit. But the thing that I want you to look first with me, and I want you to see the merciful Savior. This is Jesus coming upon a scene where the Bible is really clear here. There are tons, tons of sick people, and Jesus didn't say, all of you just be healed. He goes to this one specific man. It reminds me of when Jesus went to Bethany and Lazarus had died and Jesus goes to the cemetery. And he doesn't just say, everybody up. He says, Lazarus, come forth. It was a specific call to one particular person. And had Jesus not said the name of Lazarus, every dead person in that cemetery would have come out of their tombs. But it was a specific calling for a specific person at a specific time. Same thing here. Jesus doesn't walk up to anybody else in these five covered patio type things that are filled with people that we saw blind and lame, paralyzed, whatever the case may be. They're people in desperate situations. But he does come to this man and he does show mercy unto this particular man. So if you were in that crowd and Jesus came up to you, I think you would be pretty excited to think that anybody would even speak to you, to think that they would show interest in you. And then Jesus asked him that, that question, do you want to be well? Well, of course he wants to be well, but he verbalizes it here as he uh, meets the master, the merciful Savior here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is at a feast of the Jews. That's why Jesus has left Galilee up north to come down to Jerusalem. We don't know what feast it was. There were several feasts that they were required to attend. Every Israeli male within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend it. And, of course, people would come from all over Israel and the Roman Empire for certain feasts. Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. Uh, Pentecost was there. And uh, then there was also Hanukkah. 
Uh, we know about that. That was a feast that was not prescribed in the Old Testament, but it was a traditional feast, or the Feast of Dedication, sometimes it's called, and we'll find Jesus even going to that. And here he is, the sinless Son of God, the one who is the object of worship at the temple, and yet he attends these feasts. Now, we don't know which one it was here, because John doesn't name it. It's not important. He was just there because of the feast, and while he's there, he's over on the north side of the temple by the sheep gate today they call that area the lion's gate and uh, he was walking through this area where this pool was and the whole idea was the belief was that those uh, people had that an angel would come down and this pool was apparently spring fed and occasionally would bubble up and some historians think that it even had mineral qualities in it that would color the water and so they looked at it as a time of healing and they uh, made an assumption kind of a superstitious assumption that when the water bubbled there was an angel that came down and so the Bible describes what they believe and so the first one in the pool wins can you imagine? Last one there is a rotten egg. And uh, that's kind of the way they felt. And this poor guy has absolutely no way to get into the water at all. And so uh, Jesus comes in a very merciful and yet an also a powerful way to come to this guy. The uh, name of the pool is um, Bethesda. And that is uh, Hebrew for house of mercy house of mercy this is a very merciful thing here and it says they have these porches my translation says yours may say porticos and there are these columns that are up around there uh, Sammy and I were at this particular place the church of St. Anne sits on that place now and uh, there, were, uh, there was a time when the Romans built a shrine to false gods there. And then that was torn down later. And uh, then there was a church that was built there. And uh, then it was torn down by the Persians and then later rebuilt. And uh, the, we were there at the Church of St. Anne's. It has uh, tremendous acoustics. We went inside and we actually sang uh, a hymn to the Lord and uh, just incredibly. It was uh, built in about 1100 A.D., so it's extremely old. And uh, while they were redoing it, refurbishing it in the 1800s, all of a sudden they found these particular columns that are described here. So this is a real place, a legitimate place. Archaeologists have found this place. In fact, archaeology is the Bible's best friend because every time they dig, they find something that affirms what is said in the Bible. And for years, they looked around and they said, well, that couldn't possibly be the case. And then they did some digging and lo and behold, there it was. And Sammy and I were privileged because of your generosity to actually be in that place and to uh, see those type of things. And so this is what is happening here and this is what is going on but it seems strange to me a paralyzed guy can't get to the water that makes perfect sense doesn't it but also a paralyzed guy shouldn't be able to get to the pool either somebody took him there there's some reason that he is there maybe they just left him there and he lived there like a homeless person I don't know maybe people came by and fed him and gave him water I have no idea how all of that worked. I just know he is in a desperate and a helpless situation. And so Jesus comes by and happens to uh, come upon him by a divine appointment. 
as he was regularly attending one of these feasts that are going on here. And so uh, we, we find him being in the right place at the right time in order that he might minister to this person. But there's more to the story than just the fact that he was healed. That's a great thing that he was healed, but there's something else that is going on here and the reason that John includes it. So let's move on to point number two. Notice the futility of this guy's faith. Now, faith we would put in quotes because... When you think about what humans put their faith in, it's kind of amazing. They say, well, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who does this or, or this or this. And I, I just don't see anything like that. And yet they will put their faith in the stock market. They'll put their faith in politicians. They'll put their faith in medical science. They'll put their faith in all kinds of things. And uh, this man had some degree of faith. Now, it wasn't in Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know who was talking to him, as we'll find out later on in the story. But he had faith that if he could just get to that water somehow. Okay, Mr. Paralyzed Man, how are you going to get there? And he would probably say, I have no idea. Maybe his hope was whenever the water was troubled, and they assumed it was maybe by an angel that was coming. That was more superstition than it was uh, fact. And uh, then I can get, maybe some kind person will be there to drag me and throw me into the pool. Can you imagine a paralyzed man going into the water, being thrown into the water? I mean, this all seems rather bizarre and rather strange, doesn't it? And so uh, he was trusting that the fact that he was by the pool, surely that counts for something. And then he was trusting that somebody would get him in the pool of water. And it's all, what? Human effort. Human effort. That's what he is trusting in, like a lot of people today. When we think about lost people around us today, everything they trust in is something they can do or that something uh, that they can accomplish somehow in some way. They don't know how they're going to do it. They don't really know what it takes. They just assume that maybe when I stand before God... Things will be put on a scale, and the good will outweigh the bad. You ever heard anybody say that? And yet when you ask them, well, how much good? How do you know when you have done enough good? And they shake their head, and they go, you don't. You don't know until you get there. Well, isn't it too late by the time you get there? Yeah, I would assume it would be too late. I just cross my fingers, knock on wood, hope for the best, try my hardest, and when I get there, I hope it'll be acceptable. Do you see that? It's kind of like this guy that's paralyzed, being by the water, who has hope against hope that somehow, in some way, he'll get into the water, and that water will actually cure him instead of drowning him. After all, he is a paralyzed man. That's not much to hope for. That's not much to trust in. That's pretty fragile. That's pretty... Uh, Futile, I guess we would say. And yet, that's what his hope is. I don't know how long he's been here. We do know he's been suffering from the uh, paralysis for 38 years. I don't know if he's been at that pool for 38 years or not. Nobody tells us anything. But apparently, it had been some time. And he's hoping that he will see the angel come, stir the water, and somehow he'll be the first one to get there. There's not much hope in that. There's not much assurance in that. That's a pretty sad existence. 
day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, with absolutely no hope and no assurance that anything is going to change. Now, when you read things like this in the Bible, I want to remind you the Bible contains a lot of stories. And in those stories, not everything is good. Not everything is affirmed. Not everything is uh, taught in the Bible. And so the Bible nowhere teaches, there's no place where God said, and thou shalt dig a pool, and when an angel cometh and stirs the water of the pool, thou shalt put the first person in there, and they shall be healed. This was mythology. This is just the Bible describing what people thought during that time. And uh, I want to just give you a little clue. When you read the Bible, especially stories in the Bible, you need to think about things. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, that is in the Bible. That is a fact that took place. But that in no way commands or condones that you and I should commit adultery, right? We have words from the devil in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, eat from the tree, you won't die. Now, does that mean that what the devil says is true? It's in the Bible. That's not, it's, listen to this. We need to pay attention whether this is prescriptive, meaning it is a command, or descriptive, meaning it's just describing the situation. This is a descriptive situation. This is what they believed. This is what they thought. It was Jewish myth, Jewish fable. It's what Paul warned Timothy about when he said, uh, don't ascribe to Jewish myths and fables. There were a lot of things that the Jews came up with during those dark ages between Malachi and Matthew when God sent no prophets. And they came up with all kinds of weird laws, these different rules, different explanations, and different superstitions that would happen. Well, this guy is putting all of his faith in superstition, just what he and other people thought, nothing that is commanded or taught in the Word of God, and it's all based upon human effort. And it sounds like a lot of people today. This is truly the human condition. So this is a report that the Bible is given to us. It's not something that we ought to try to do. It's not something that they should try to do. It is something that they just assumed would happen. And that makes this story even more sad. This guy is believing in something that's not even true. This guy is hoping in something that has no power. This guy is sitting there staking his life on the fact that a superstitious ritual, a superstitious idea is going to give him any kind of power. And so thirdly then, we notice something here. Notice I've got the words written down here omniscience that means knowing everything that's Christ power or could say omnipotence I guess and mercy omniscience power and mercy now notice it says in verse 6 when Jesus saw him lying there why did he see him there were lots of other people there why this one particular guy we don't know it's just what he chose to do. And he saw him lying there. And look at the next phrase. And knew, and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. He didn't really need an answer to the question. He didn't really need 
an explanation. Now John gives us an explanation because we don't know. None of us here have the gift of omniscience. We don't automatically know everything. We don't even know our own heart because it's deceitful and desperately wicked. It tricks us. And we don't know the hearts of other people. Oh, they're good people. Oh, they have a good heart. You don't know that. You don't know that for sure. And there are plenty of times when we get fooled. Well, Jesus is never fooled because he knows you. He knows everybody. And he knows us with perfect knowledge. And he has all power. And he also is a merciful Savior here. We sing about that a lot. But understand this. You only need mercy if you're guilty. You don't need mercy if you're innocent. You don't need mercy if you're perfect. Well, this man is an imperfect sinner, and uh, everyone else is as well. You and I are as well, and we cry out for mercy. We actually need the mercy of God because we deserve far more than we have. Now, notice that the Lord asked him, Do you want to be made well? Well, that's why he's there, isn't it? But he wants this man to confess it. And the sick man answered and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. Notice his faith is in man. No man to put me into the pool. And his faith is in the pool, in the water, when the water is stirred up. But uh, while I am coming, another steps down before me. So now it's not only that I need somebody and I need to get in that water at just the right time, but also, there are other people who are taking my place. They're getting there before I do. There's only so much healing that can take place. And someone else is getting healed. I remain sick. And so his faith is completely messed up. And he has no idea who he's talking to. So consider this. Out of all the people who were there, Jesus saw this one man. And I want you to think about how beautiful and wonderful that is. Because if you look at it like that, out of all of the billion people on the billions of people on the earth, why are you saved? Why did you hear the gospel? Why did you hear about Jesus? So many have never heard, but you have. That's simply the mercy of God. And notice here it says he knew that the man had been there a long time. And as I said before, it's the same word that's used about the woman at the well when he knew that she did not have a husband, but it had five husbands, and the one she was living with was not her husband. There is nothing that you can hide from God. There's nothing that you can surprise him with. There's nothing that will shock him. There's nothing that he looks at and goes, well, I didn't know that, or I didn't see that coming. Those are words that will never come from the Lord. And so we find that uh, Jesus knew the man's situation here, and he comes to this particular man, and the man's answer to Jesus' question shows us some things, that he had no idea who Jesus was. It's not like, uh, there were some other situations in the Gospels that you remember where they cried out to him, Jesus, Son of David, heal us. Not, not here. This guy has no idea who Jesus is. And he thought his only hope would be in human effort. Maybe he hopes that Jesus would stay there with him and he would say, hey, whenever that water moves, I'll toss you into the pool. Jesus is a big, strong man. He was a carpenter after all. And he would have the ability to pick up this frail, weak, paralyzed, older man and put him into the water. Maybe he hoped something like that. I don't know. Maybe he hoped a relative would come by. I don't know. But he is trusting in the compassion and the mercy 
of humans, and he has no idea who this is to whom he is speaking. Kind of like, again, like the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus said to her, If you only knew who was speaking to you, you would ask him for a drink. But she didn't, and so she didn't. And she had no idea until he revealed himself to her. Same thing is true with this man's case. He's not crying out. He's not seeking Jesus. He's not looking. He doesn't even know about Jesus or anything that would uh, have to do with him. And then I want you to notice number four. This whole thing leads to controversy. Jesus said to him, look at verse 8. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, that's almost kind of cruel. If you see somebody who is paralyzed and you walk up to them and say, hey, just get up out of that wheelchair, that's kind of a cruel thing to do to somebody like that. Except Jesus, when he does it, he has healing power over all of this. And you notice that our text tells us here that Jesus gives him a command and then he gives him the ability. And that's like when the Bible tells us, even in salvation, there's so many things, repent and believe the gospel. And yet we find ourselves that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't even do that. It's Jesus who gives the command and, listen carefully, Jesus gives the ability to carry out the command. And the same is true after we're saved. We look at things in the Bible and we say, well, I could never do that. How could I do that? Well, because you're saved and because you possess the Holy Spirit and because you have the Word of God, it's Jesus who gives the command and He gives the power. And that's why legalism, trusting in human works, trusting in religion, trusting even in the Old Testament law in order to save you, it can't do it because it has no power. Martin Luther says that the law commanded me to fly but gave me no power. But grace through Christ gave me the command, and gave me the power to spread my wings and to fly. And we see this here with this man. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, if I could do that, I wouldn't be here by the pool. If I could do that, I wouldn't be waiting for somebody to throw me into the water. What are you talking about? Rise, take up your bed, and walk. If I could do that, I'd be at home. If I could do that, I'd be at my fa- with my family. If I could do that, I'd be uh, at work on Monday. Right? Can't do it. Can't do it can't do it except that something happens right after the command is given whatever command Jesus gives he also gives the ability to carry out that command and it says immediately the man was made well and then obeyed took up his bed and he walked now I want you to think about something as we read through this story when Jesus said rise up the man getting up was no problem when he said walk That's no problem. But there's one thing that was a problem. He said, take up your bed. And the man took up his bed, folded up that pallet, put it under his arm, and started walking with that. Now, the fact that he rose from the pallet didn't attract any attention from the uh, Jewish leaders. The fact that this guy that was paralyzed was walking, there's nothing brought up about that at all. You know what they saw? He is carrying his bed on the Sabbath. You know, religion has this way of just taking all the joy out of everything. 
And instead of rejoicing that this man had been healed and investigating the situation so they could find out who did it and worship him and serve him, all they can see is he's carrying his bed. He's not doing it right. And that's all that God is. You ever do that? You ever had a time where you really can't see the person or see what's going on? All you can see is something you don't like, something that you don't think is good, something that you are offended by. We live in a land and in a culture now where everybody is offended by everything. You know what that tells us? We are so immature as a society. We think we're so smart. We think we have been so liberated. And we think we are so advanced. They call it the progressive movement. And yet everything somebody does or says or the way that they act, everybody's triggered. Everybody is offended. Everybody is just kind of curling up like that. There's something wrong with us. When we're constantly, constantly offended, constantly having our feelings hurt, and constant, we're looking at the wrong things. Instead of seeing God working through all of this, instead of thinking of His sovereignty that He has put us in this place, instead of thinking that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, well, people don't want to hear the truth now. And we cover up the truth, and we deceive, and we lie. Our government deceives and lies. Did you uh, hear Anthony Fauci after all the COVID mess? Did you hear him the other day say that the idea of having uh, six feet of separation, remember all of those stickers that were put on all of the stores all over the land? Did you hear him the other day testify? They had no scientific backing for that? And probably a whole lot else. And yet they have no problem just blatantly telling a lie and repeating a lie and gaslighting us with all of that type of thing. And we're still under a little bit of that today. Isn't that amazing? And no shame, no remorse, no regret. Because we live in a society of falsehoods. We live in a society where we don't want to face the truth about ourselves or about our situation. I'm a good person. I'm... I'm enough, we say. I am capable and all of these kind of things. And don't you tell me I'm not. I am a tolerant, progressive person. And you better not to refute that or I will cancel you. I mean, isn't it ironic? It's crazy. And we look at the people that are back here in Jesus' day, that uh, the fact that a man like this gets up and the fact that he walks, they just ignore that. No big deal. But he's got his mattress under his arm and that is a problem and that's why John adds on to this verse and that day was the Sabbath oh we've got problems now this is a big big problem in John chapter 5 verse 10 it says the Jews therefore said to him who was cured it is the Sabbath it is not lawful for you to carry your bed unimpressed by everything else, but you broke the law. That's all they could see. They never saw righteousness. They never saw goodness. They never saw anything else. All they could see was what was wrong. Let me tell you something. Some of you who are parents, if you're not careful, all you'll ever see is when your kid does wrong. Catch them doing something right and affirm them for that kind of thing. 
There are some of you that all you can see is everything that is wrong in somebody else. Your teacher this morning said something wrong. Maybe I did something that was wrong or got something wrong. Happens, doesn't it? Maybe we look around at the world we're in and all we can see is what is wrong. All we can see is that it's freezing cold outside and we can't praise God for the fact that we have heat. All we can see is that something doesn't work instead of praising God that anything works in a fallen world. Think about all of that and think about our attitude. We tend to be a lot like them. All we can see is where other people stumble. All we can see is where they mess up. Now certainly we ought to go by the word of God but I want to ask you a question. Were they going by the word of God? Well, let's find out. Because as we progress into this story, we see that the problem was not actually what was written in the word of God. I want to read to you out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. What did God say about the Sabbath? Well, he said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, Sabbath means seventh, of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do no work, you nor you, your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay? That's the command. Does that say anything about carrying a bed? No. Well, where did they get that? Well, during those 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew... They weren't hearing from God, so they would get together and they would write commentaries on the law. The Mishnah, one of them is called, and the Talmud, another one is called. And the problem is, after they thought and reasoned and wrote all of that out, it started carrying equal weight with the Scripture. And they started saying, well, if we're not to work on the Sabbath, well, how do we define work? It's not enough just to not uh, do our normal job and making our money and spending that day with the Lord as they were commanded. We have to define every little thing. They were looking for loopholes, kind of, and they were also looking for ways to condemn other people. A man who lived in the 1600s, considered the greatest Hebrew scholar that Europe has ever uh, produced, he said that the rabbinical law read like this. You ready? Whosoever on the Sabbath bringeth anything in or taketh anything out from a public place to a private one, he hath done uh, sin. And if he hath done this inadvertently, he shall sacrifice for his sin. Now listen to this. But if willfully, he shall be cut off and shall be stoned. This is how serious these people were. And they are taking this as scripture, even though it's not scripture. The scripture never said anything that severe. And yet they had it down to the weight 
in some cases, of no more than a dried fig over a certain distance, and then it became work, and then it was sinful. Well, this man taking, rolling up his mattress, picking it up and carrying it, that was defined as work. And if he did that inadvertently, why are you doing this? Who told you to do this? That's why they're questioning. And if they determined that he did it willfully, this man could be executed for what he did, and that wasn't even in the Bible. Now, this is why Jesus had so much trouble with the Pharisees. This is why he had so much trouble. And he would say things like, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Well, how dare he? Because he was refuting their traditions. He was refuting their superstitions. He was refuting their human opinions. He was refuting their addition to the Word of God, to the Scriptures. And that's why we can't embrace Mormonism. Joseph Smith wrote a book and then added it to the Scriptures, and it contradicts the Scriptures, and the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. This is why we don't have a time where people come up and say, I had a dream the other night, and thus saith the Lord. No, we find everything we need through the Bible, and we stand alone on the Word of God. And this is what caused Jesus so much trouble. He didn't go with the flow. He didn't affirm their traditions. He didn't affirm their superstitions. He didn't affirm their thinking, their feelings. He didn't affirm what humans said. He said, we've got to go back to what the Word of God says. And this is what God says. And this is why he said it. And it all pointed to him. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. But it's the Scriptures who testify of me. Not the oral law not the traditions of the rabbis, not the Mishnah or the Talmud, but the word, the very word of God. And so this man here is probably kind of panicking because he is in, um, well, maybe he is in uh, trouble with the Jews that could result in him being stoned. Wouldn't it be great to be healed of paralysis, only be taken out to the edge of the city and have rocks dropped on you? And so when we look at all of these kind of things, we find out, no wonder that uh, this is happening. This story, what is it really about? It's not really about the healing. It's not really about the pool. It's not really about whether there was an angel or not an angel or whether people got healed or people didn't get healed. This was a showdown and the battle is on because this began the hostility and the plots against Jesus that culminated in his arrest, his betrayal, his arrest. And as it says in John chapter 5, look down at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So all of this is the reason that they hated him so much. Why? Because he healed a man? No. Because he did it on the Sabbath. What was that doing? That was a blatant way of saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, he says later on there, my father is working and I'm doing the works of my father. And they understood what he meant. He's claiming to be God. So was Jesus a victim? Why didn't he just stay in Nazareth? Why didn't he just stay there and build furniture and houses and that kind of thing and then heal somebody every once in a while and let life go on like that? 
But no, he has to go to Jerusalem, pick out this one man, heal him. The man gets up, takes up his bed. The Jews pounce on all of that. And they want to know who it is that did this to you. And they are plotting them because of that to kill him. Plotting to harass him, to persecute him, leading to his death. Was Jesus a victim of circumstances? If you ever watch the Three Stooges, you've always heard Curly He'd say, I'm a victim of circumstances. Remember that? Was that Jesus? Well, let's close by looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles. We just read about one. Wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Now listen to this. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless or Roman hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up. You killed him, God raised him up. Which side are you on, right? having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This is the purpose of the story. Jesus is saying, bring it on. It's time to be about the Father's business. What is the Father's business? Oh, yes, we may do some miracles. We may heal some people. We may raise some people from the dead, but that's not the real purpose. It is to go and to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be tried in an unjust trial, to be crucified for the sins of all who would believe in Christ so he could be raised from the dead and now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what the story is about. And Jesus doesn't just sit back passively and let it come to him. He confronts it and he steps right out into it He is a bold, bold man, the God-man, and he heals this man knowing it is going to start the ball rolling for his persecution, betrayal, arrest, and ultimately his death. And he says, bring it on. That's why I came. So when you look at the Bible and you read these stories don't automatically assume you know everything that's going on and don't automatically put yourself into the story look at it and see Christ and think about this what is Jesus doing and Jesus is setting everything up so that he can do exactly what he came to do that's why he came to earth why we celebrated at Christmas he was born to die for our sins. Praise his name. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't shrink back from it. He didn't try to get out of it. He wasn't hiding in the garden. He didn't run when the troops came. He came right out and said, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, he said to them. He didn't shrink back at all. This is why he came. And he came so that he might save sinners like you. Sinners like me. We all need a savior. And if you will put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone as the full payment for your sin. Quit trusting in man. Quit trusting in superstition. Quit trusting in what you think leads to salvation or what other people have told you leads to salvation. And think about this. 
If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You really believe that, preacher? Yeah. Well, how do you know what the truth is? Because it's found in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. And we stand on the word of God, and the truth of the word of God tells us exactly how it is that we have a right relationship with God. If you've never trusted him today and you're convicted of your sin and you know that you can't save yourself and you know that religion can't save you, good works can't save you, the affirmation of others can't save you, but you realize today that only Jesus can save you and that's why he came to earth, then will you pray to him and put your trust in him, ask him to cleanse you and forgive you of your sin. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He died, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sin. Will you trust him today? And if you've already trusted him today, and you are not walking with him, and you're trying to do things in your own strength, quit it. Because the Bible says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Our walk everyday life is just like when we got saved. It's by grace, and it's through faith. Trust him. No matter what situation you may find yourself in, you can trust him for everyday life just like you trusted him for your eternity. And my prayer is that all of us, saved or lost, would repent and turn to Jesus, bow before him and submit to him and walk in his strength and power. May we pray together? Lord Jesus, it seems to me like a lot of Christian people today are trying to do things their own way in their own strength, and they fail constantly. They have no joy, they have no peace, they have no power in their life. And my prayer is that today they would repent of that. And then there are lost people here today. They think they earn gold stars by coming to church. Well, I'm glad they came, but this doesn't save them. It doesn't help them, it doesn't push them toward it. There's only one thing that saves, and that is Jesus Christ. May they repent of their sins and call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord today. And may we all leave this place right with God for your glory. And thank you that you are such a faithful Savior, a powerful Savior. And thank you that when you came to earth, you let nothing deter you or detour you from going to the cross. Praise your holy name for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.